0: Hello and welcome to part 19 of our Understanding Class series. Today is Monday the 17th of October 2022 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We continue Chapter 5, Michael Mann's Two Frameworks of Class Analysis. This week I have the new Patreon, Brahma Nahatcha, to thank. If you'd like to help support the show, please head on over to the Patreon, where you get access to all those Patreon-only episodes in the Discord server and if you'd like to find out more about the socialist planning book that Donald and myself are busy working on, head on over to the theclasslessocietyinmotion.com the where you can find links on how to support the project. The links to the slides for this episode are also in the show notes. Okay, to the discussion. Okay, so we are halfway through Chapter 5. Chapter 5. So we would just gone and we had gone through how man was laying out power organizations. Power organizations determine the structure and transformation of society. And today we're going to hit into classes as economic power organizations. Okay, so Kyle, do you want to open off and take the first slide for us?
1: Sure thing. Classes in this framework are a particular kind of collective actor formed into organizations that deploy economic power resources. Mann does not, however, provide a compact definition of class organization so that one would know for sure that a particular economic power organization was an instance of a quote unquote class organization as opposed to some other kind of economic power organization. The closest we get is statements that point to classes as economic power organizations whose economic power is derived from quote, rights over economic resources. Sections are subdivisions of classes. They acquire their conceptual status as a section by virtue of being nested within a class organization. Segments are economic power organizations that combine heterogeneous sets of rights over economic resources. This is what it means to say that segments cross-cut classes.
0: Okay, so what's he saying here about sections and segments,
1: Kyle? I mean, uh, Wright is basically calling him out, right? Because he's like, well, you don't define what a class organization is other than maybe a class And then sections are subdivisions of classes, which are nested within a class organization. But if the only instance of a class organization is a class, then how could they be nested within it? It doesn't make sense. And then we have the segments that are basically like hybrid cross-class economic power organizations like... I don't know, you could say like uh political parties, right? I was gonna
2: say, yeah, party, right? Like,
1: but but it would have to be like, you know, say uh the the Chinese Communist Party, right? Like has like a very strong economic dimension as well as being a political cross-class organization.
2: I know I got a question, Kyle, and or or for you, Tom, like when I read sections, am I am I Am I misinterpreting this to, to translate that into fractions? Like I, I it, it just reminds me of like, you know, like like a class fraction, like, like you know, capital is divided into multiple fractions kind of related to sectors and even particular sec- sectors might have fractions. Like I study the oil industry in Canada and it's like, you know, there's large capital firms that control, that are in particular places within relations of fossil fuel production. There's like the smaller driller organizations, they're different fractions but they might unite within particular organizations. So I guess my one question I have is whether or not sections can be read that way. Cause that's the only way it, it makes tons of sense to me. And then the second thing I, I'm curious, that I, I have difficulty through the rest of the chapter. Like what, what does man really mean by a class organization? Is that just a, is that, is he talking about actual organizations like a, like a network of trade unions or?
0: I think he's trying to talk about like, when he's talking about classes here as p- economic power organizations, as classes for okay. themselves, as opposed to classes, sorry, in themselves, you know, that kind of Marxist distinction. I, I, I so That's what I think, Kyle, correct me if I'm wrong. Like with sections here, I think your fraction would be a section, but a section doesn't necessarily need to be a fraction. Okay. Sort of, yeah, like as in, this yeah. section could just be I... groups of workers across different actual industries, there could be some kind of organization that wouldn't actually be like a fraction of capital relinked to it, say.
1: I think man wants it to mean something different than a fraction, like being something that has other potential applications, but the only examples he provides are classes and sections of classes would be class fractions. So they're effectively identical, even though man would suggest they're not, because you could have I don't know some other kind of economic power organization that he doesn't specify, which has sections of it. Uh, but, like, but in, in practice, uh, they are just class fractions. Yes,
0: but like take for example something like say uh, a typical right wing like dominant party like the Tory Party in England it's not the case that the Tory party is made up just of like bourgeois business owners. It's also got a working class base of membership. Yeah. But it's too. also not an
1: economic power organization, right?
0: Okay. But we did not say
1: political organizations earlier. Uh, no, that's why I was saying it had to be something like the Chinese communist party where it's like literally a economic organization as well as a political one. Cool. Uh, like well, You'd uh, have to have like some kind of Bonapartist, Economic planning situation going on to have something like that.
2: Okay, so I so here's 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 a question, and it's related to something that I I suspect I'll bring back in a little bit later as Wright develops his critique of man, especially the the implications. It's like it's especially like what he directly says in in terms of his framework for class, and then the actual practicality of how he applies it. You know, uh, Wright goes on to critique this, but like, would for instance, an industry association? or a chamber of commerce be an example.
1: I think uh, you could, so this is just an extrapolation. It's not something a man actually says, but I think like a reasonable example of an economic power organization that is not a class would be something like OPEC because OPEC has like literal rights over economic resources. Whereas a chamber of commerce it wouldn't make use of its economic rights as a corporate entity. It would only, like, the individual corporations that make up the Chamber of Commerce would do that, right? And, and whereas, like, OPEC, it's a cartel, so they literally have to do things in concert in order for it to be effective. It could be kind of, you could, I think, like, could
0: you think of, like, the Chamber of Commerce thing as kind of quasi like, it's very close, but
1: I would I, I would say exactly what man is talking about. Yeah, talking about. if we want to follow the definition, oh sorry, no, I'm getting confused because you're you're completely right because uh, economic they would be an economic power organization, but according to <laughs> according to man's definition of a class, we would actually see OPEC as a class as well because it, it, it's it's a it's a economic power organization whose economic power is derived from rights over economic resources. Yeah. I see what you're saying cuz
2: like cuz like the reason I go I mean I like the OPEC example the reason I go to things like Chamber of Commerce or industry associations is that as we proceed right is going to call out man right for like essentially not having any meaningful way to explain how how a, a members of a class actually come to form some kind of like collective identity and the capacity to exert collective action, and uh, yes. because because I study ca- capitalist class organizing, you know, it's like in my mind, it's like oh yeah, like various capitalist class fractions have all sorts of organizations and have developed them over time, precisely because they don't all automa- All the individual actors are in competition with each other in the marketplace, even if they're also relatively united against workers. And they need means in order to determine some kind of collective interest that they can pursue politically, right? Yeah,
1: that would, that would uh, match the sort of vaguely defined idea of an economic power organization. Yes. Okay, Kaj, do you want to keep going with this, this section? Understood this way, the core agenda of class analysis is understanding the patterns of formation of classes as power organizations and how these have developed historically. So again, remember, we're talking about classes as power organizations being roughly equivalent to the idea of the class for itself. In most of human history, man claims that classes were not the main form of economic power organizations. Until recently, segments and sections usually predominated over classes. Classes were generally only quote-unquote latent owners, that is like the class in itself, laborers and others struggled, but usually semi-covertly, intensively, confined to an everyday local level. Most extensive struggle was between segments. Classes in this framework are a particular kind of collective actor formed into organizations that deploy economic power resources. So this is the, he's not saying I don't think that segments are classes, but rather that in contrast to the segments, classes are a kind of collective actor formed into organizations that deploy economic power resources. The main story about classes in the course of the development of capitalism is the gradual emergence of class as the predominant form of economic power organization, first among capitalists and then later among laborers. While no capitalist society reached the point predicted by Marx of fully polarized, symmetrical, extensive class organizations engaged in a head-on dialectical struggle with one another, capitalist development did generate a predominance of class organization and at least some tendencies towards extensive forms of class conflict. Right. What, where do we start with this? Like, if we were to look
0: at feudalism, do we not see like classes operating in feudalism do we not see the like, feudal landlords were operating as a class they may be mm, uh, intra feudal warfare but like that is can be you know like is that
1: not an to
0: interstate capitalist warfare or intra firm capitalist warfare
1: i would say okay i would say that in feudalism the strongest expression you get of Uh, like a self-conscious class organization is when you see these little eruptions of capitalism that are trying to overthrow the feudal order. And the reaction against that tends to be like of a class nature, right? There is a sort of, you see these kinds of like collective feudal efforts to put down bourgeois revolts, and other than that, I think it is. I
0: mean, it's, I have a question. I have a question, Kyle. What about the, yeah. even the existence of a king, or you know, of a royalty as a class kind of compromise between feuding feudal warlords? That like is yeah. that is a kingdom itself not
1: shows that there is class activity. I mean there's definitely class activity the question is whether it is a class in or a class for itself that's the question right like as opposed to sort of unconsciously individual monarchs fighting against the church for their secular power a collective of monarchs trying to suppress the power of the church as, like, you know, this is in favor of secular feudal power, right? So, because absolutely there is class struggle going on in feudalism, but class organization, I think it happens sometimes, but it's not the main form of social conflict, I wouldn't think. Yeah, maybe... Under feudalism. Yeah, under feudalism. There's, there's maybe, like you could look at like guild interests but i don't know guild interests like i think as marx points out are quite internally divided between the masters and the journeymen right that's a corporate interest that the guilds would fight for as opposed to a class interest because it's like a it's a what do you call it uh, here in this analysis a segment uh, of the masters and the and the journeymen, like like feudal society was really messy and complicated. That's why I'm hesitant to say that you see self conscious class organization. I mean, except for like peasant revolts, right? Well, this like is peasant kind of what are pretty straightforward a class organization.
2: And did did feudal like lords and aristocrats, like the, the aristocratic class, like did they ever, would they ever team, like like start coordinating when they were worried about revolts or did they continue being in competition with each other? Because like one of the interesting things I would argue about capitalist class power and that I actually think comes out of this chapter and or this interesting things to tease out in his kind of, I guess, critical engagement with man, right? Is that like capitalists, under capitalism, are like the reason why they tend to form kind of like political power organizations or whatever you want to call them is because the the structure of the market means that even though they are like, even though their power is based on exploitation of workers, they are also often in competition with each other in the market. And they actually like require orga- organizational forms that can allow them to pursue their collective interests and even come to understand what their collective interests are vis-a-vis other classes. And that's kind of like what the political scientist Fred Fisher used to call like a rolling consensus. Like that's what those sorts of organizations do. But it seems from the way you're describing it is that like under feudalism, maybe the aristocratic class doesn't have that level of self-conscious organization. And that's an organization that under capitalism, I would argue, doesn't emerge. And this is man's problem, I think, in, in terms of this, the way it's described in this chapter is like, capitalists or workers don't necessarily spontaneously develop that shared understanding. There's usually some kind of political struggle, some kind of or- organizational attempts. There are fractions of co- members within classes. You know, Gramsci called them organic intellectuals that work to organize other members, mm-hmm. and it's not really immediately obvious from the outstart. Even if even if they ha- they're sharing a similar structural position within relations of production, there there tends to be some some kind of political labor almost that goes.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that. Maybe it didn't start out as this, but maybe you could see see the Holy Roman Empire as a kind of feudal collective actor, right? Because like once the emperor like there, there's sort of that, that middle period where like the Habsburgs aren't like over like super overly predominant in their power but the power of the holy roman emperor has also been checked that like the hre is kind of existing as a club for feudal lords to have their little petty bits of property and exploit their peasants and and kind of work together to protect that economic resource right that those economic rights So I think that there is like that. That would probably be the strongest one I could point to in terms of like a self-conscious feudal class organization. Even though it wasn't founded with that in mind, right? It was founded to be like literally just a normal ass empire.
2: We've got to like we've got to eventually. It's like oh, we need to rationalize the different factions of of the ruling classes of Europe because if not, um, we're not going to be able to maintain. Like there's going to be chaos or we're going to lose our positions. Yeah,
1: like, like, oh, we're all these little tiny Mm -hmm. lords. How are we going to stand up against France? You know, how are we going to stand up against Poland? You know, and we don't want a Holy Roman Emperor running the show and telling us what to do. But if we do keep this collective organization around, then we can kind of do like collective self-defense of our feudal property.
2: How does something like the Magna Carta fit into this? Like, is, oh, is but then, a, then you're already
1: like yeah now, in, now you're
2: already at the tail end of feudalism feudalism yes, is, exactly I, I exactly more, it's, yeah. it's like it
1: is that is certainly a, uh, a like a conscious class effort among the the aristocracy to check royal power but I, I don't know if it, it if it corresponds to a what you would call like an actual organization that's like ongoing and and a class organization. I think you don't really see the emergence of, like, the Tory party as an aristocratic class organization until you start to see the emergence of capitalism, right? There were, like, su- some members of the aristocracy who were Whigs, but they tended to have more uh, diversified economic interests than the Tories who were, who were more into their, like, you know, feudal land outings. Is there any other points in this in this slide that we haven't? I think we've dealt with it all, haven't we? I mean, I, I guess just generally to say, like what man is saying here basically corresponds to what Marx lays out at the start of Capital in terms of a theory of of history and and class development. Right, that it's not until you get capitalism that like the the sort of key to history is is unlocked and revealed. Before that, things are just very confused between a bunch of different, like, segmental struggles that obscure the class conflict.
0: Okay, I'll take this next question. Continuing in this vein of argumentation, man's class analysis is thus firmly anchored in the third conceptual cluster of class analysis we discussed earlier, the relations between classes. He goes further, rejecting the usefulness of any systematic analysis of the objective relational aspects of class structures. Commenting on Marx's discussion of capitalists and proletarians as economically defined classes, he writes, such classes might be considered objective, but we might choose to define classes by other objective, inverted commas, criteria. So-called industrial society theorists distinguish classes according to their specialized role in the division of labor, which method yields numerous occupational classes. Viberians identify classes according to market capacities, producing many classes based on ownership of property, scarce job skills, professional powers, and educational levels. How do we choose among these equally, inverted commas, objective schemes? The economic without organisational criteria gives only what I term latent class, corresponding roughly to the term objective class or class in itself. Such a latent class is of little sociological interest. Theorists may develop what analytical categories they like as ideal types, but only some of these help explain the real world. If classes are significant power actors in the real world, they must be organised extensively
2: or politically. So this is, getting to your point. This is the point you made earlier? Yeah, no, I think so. It's like, this is, it's like, man is really... Because like it's very interesting because like the very first, I've been annotating uh, my PDF of, of the book and like the very first page I just wrote, like I just put a little comment like in itself for itself question mark, like what's going on there, right? Like, and it seems that, like like what he's doing here or, or the way that Wright frames what he's doing here, it's like he's calling out, maybe this is, maybe I'm stretching the metaphor a little too far, but it's what I always call, sometimes like I, I used to call my students when people used to watch the cartoon South Park underpants gnome logic right like there's an episode of south park where like there's like these underpants gnomes who like steal everyone's like steal the kids underpants where they're asleep and it's supposed to be just like a riff on the idea that like you lose socks and underwear in like the laundry machine you never really know where they go right and like they, they like track the underpants gnomes like underneath to like their underground layer and they're trying to figure out like why are you stealing everyone's underpants they look like these old lawn gnomes or whatever right and and they're like oh yeah well, we've got like this three-point Plan to profit, right? And it's like step one is steal underpants. And then, like, step two is like, question mark. It just says question mark. <laughs> and then <laughs> step three is profit. Yeah. Right. Man's trying to go straight from stealing underpants to profit. Like, there's, you know, it, there's, it's like, well, how the hell, how the heck do they gain these, the, the capacity to act collectively? In organizations, whether as a, a, an economic power organization that defines a class, or whether or not an organization that 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 is a segment that that brings different people from different classes, like like there has to be some connection between people's capacity, like pe- a class's capacity or members of a class's capacity to act collectively within an organization and their position within relations of production, and if not. What are you studying? Like, why not just be a pluralist, like Robert Dahl? Like, I don't really understand. Um, like, why not just be a liberal? Like, what's the point of doing class analysis? I, 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 it feels weird to me. It feels like a weird framework. I don't understand how he's getting to the profit part of the underpants gnome equation. Yeah. Is
1: Kyle is man like is man a liberal? I don't know. I just know about him from this chapter he seems kind of lib, but like trying to make use of, of like some of Marx's ideas. Like, yeah.
0: How, how, how do you write a sentence like this? Like the one I've highlighted, such a latent
1: class. I mean, you have to be, you have to be an academic to write something. So <laughs> <incredibly> stupid.
2: <laughs> it makes yeah. no sense, right? Like, it's, yeah. and, and to to be do, clear, I'm not saying I think man's a liberal. I'm just saying that there are assumptions there that don't make sense. Like, like what he's, right. What, he, what he's trying to analyze doesn't make a lot of sense if what he says is of little sociological interest is actually of little sociological interest. Yeah, As I, I, it I economic, would, I our would religion, suggest right? who joins, like wh- wh- what's the logic behind who joins them, right? Like why not yeah. just roll a dice and pick a name out of the phone book and ask them to join your, your, right. your union organization, it's a, right? It's, like,
0: a stoch- it's a stochastic, you know, theory of class.
1: I would suggest that like man's arguments here are motivated not by his class interest, but by his uh, sectional interest as an academic careerist that he's he's really just trying to stir up controversy in order to make a controversy around himself that like this is this is so incredibly stupid that it's, like, almost beneath comment. But somehow these things happen where people, like, take a reasonable theory, like, you know, Marx's theory, and then just cut out one of the core sections and is like, oh, it's my new theory that makes no sense at all, but I'm just going to fuck everybody by saying this like it makes sense.
2: Well, I remember, like, Kyle, I think you and I, I think I we've talked before about, like, Terry Eagleton's book on his ideology primary right like ideology right. And, introduction. and there's this great section i always talk i always come back to it where he's like where he's trying to he's trying to go after like the post marxists like laclau and Mouffe, and so on who essentially see no meaningful connection to people's position within relations of production in terms sure. of which, which groups are likely to join up with other groups at, in, in a socialist movement or a populist movement or whatever uh, and yeah, just trying- like
1: just like hyper Leninism, right? Like, yeah, they're, they're they're like all that matters is the political.
2: The, That's the right. Economic right. is irrelevant. That's yeah. right. And and I think what those sorts of things are trying to do there, there's a certain logic to it in the sense that like as you start realizing there's no necessary one to one connection between being in a particular class position and a particular ideological self understanding that you're guaranteed to have, right? But as yeah. Eagleton points out, there's a difference between saying there's necessarily no connection between your position within relations production and your self-understanding as a class and saying that there is necessarily no connection, right? Like there's no, yeah. There's, yeah. there's no necessary connection and necessarily no connection. Because he's like, well, if there's literally no connection, why don't like between between your positions in relations of production and the political movements and you're, you're likely to be part of and the organizations you're likely to be part of, why don't socialists just pull all of their money and just like target the like 10 wealthiest billionaires on the planet and try to convince them to be socialists with like a really good framing campaign.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not, not that it hasn't been tried, but uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: But that's, the second uh, yeah, you yeah. ask that question, it becomes immediately apparent that this is a ridiculous <laughs> concept, right? <laughs> like that—that that, yeah. that is not a good use of your political resources and energy <laughs> to try to convince Elon Musk to be, to, to, to joining the, the socialist vanguard. Maybe, maybe they're kids. You know, that's
0: who you're more likely to get. You know, rich heirs. Didn't didn't Ralph <laughs> Nader write a book on like the title of, like something like "Only the Billionaire Can Save Us Now"? Literally making the pitch to
1: switch a billionaire over entire class and then we can use his money. It's not to say that you don't have individual, extremely wealthy people who become socialists or communists. Like, you know, obviously there's like angles, but like, you know...
0: It, He's not that wealthy, you know. No, I know, but like you know. go,
1: you, like if you look at like, yeah. uh, say like the the CPUSA in its heyday, there were a lot of uh, rich women like bourgeois women in the CPUSA, you know, like these things can happen, but you can't call that a class organization. That is a, that's a political cause that they're taking out. They're they're engaging in individually, right? Like it's, it's like, it's like, you can't have a pro, like you can't have a socialist or communist party. That's literally just made up of middle-class intellectuals like if it, if it doesn't have any working class basis it's not a class organization other than just you know being a middle class like i don't know wankery club right
2: well the the only the only point i'll, I'll, I'll uh, kind of satirically p- poke back on is that you can indeed have such an organization. <laughs> and they and they do indeed exist. Oh, <laughs> like, well, you can not, have it, but it, it, it but just it no, it's, not, fit. it's not it's not a culture, it doesn't fit it's not a culture. It's of of what a class right. organization is, yeah. right? It's it's it is it's a it becomes a weird it becomes a weird um, a middle class uh,
1: cosplay festival. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. The Canadian left is full is full of those organizations and parties,
1: right? Well every left party in the history of Ever has been full of intellectuals like that it's just the the ones that have only that are not they're not a political force yeah okay yeah so yeah there we have here we have ralph nader's only the super rich can save us book of uh 2009 when Nader, nader is like yo have you considered getting elon to bankroll utopia
0: I remember that was a he he was pitching that one very hard on Democracy Now, back in my Democracy Now, my early leftist days. Um, okay, let me keep going and read read this next read this slide. Furthermore, we're continuing here. In effect, Mann argues that much of what class and stratification analysts study is of little sociological interest because they focus on the efforts of objective properties of the locations of people within social structures rather than the effects of collectively organized power actors. That to me just makes no sense. But uh, okay, Uh, man's dismissal of the analysis of objective properties of class relations would be compelling if it were the case that there were no systematic causal connections between these properties and the formation of collective power actors that are man's central concern. However, if the objective properties of the social relations of production make certain kinds of power organizations more likely and sustainable than others. Class analysis should pay attention to both of these conceptual clusters. Like when he takes it out of this idea of it coming out of the production relations and ownership relations, then he's just left with like no causal mechanism. It's nearly like these things are just they they appear out of nowhere. You know, it's 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 a very uh, yeah, non
1: scientific approach. They're clustered around economic rights, but the origin of those economic rights is an is, is a complete mystery. Right. Yeah, it, it just emerged out of the ether, like you know, like the endowments people have in uh, neoclassical uh, economic theory.
0: Right. It's the clumpiness of uh, the universe after the Big Bang. That's what we're talking.
1: I don't know, Tom. That sounds pretty objective to me. <laughs> yeah i i i i uh i, I look askance at that framework it's too uh, materialist yeah it's too materialist I, I think we should really just be focusing on the uh the the social conscious dimension of things
2: yeah some kind, form of sort some sort of like a psycho effective uh, feeling that just emerges from the ether somehow and uh, yeah
1: I would say it's actually like Probably being beamed down to us from space aliens on the other side of the galaxy. That, that's, that's probably where these uh, class organizations are originating from.
2: So, They're probably beefing up on their simulation theory.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like- the Matrix, man. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> these are just, these are just like, the teams they put us on in this big game.
0: <laughs> okay, Bob. How do you feel about
2: hitting up the middle class? Yeah, Do you want to smack up the middle class here for us? I'll smack up the middle class. I'm happy you're throwing this one at me because I found this section very interesting. So, yeah, Mann sums up his analysis of the middle class in 19th century capitalism thus. A middle class emerged with a distinctive relation to power resources with its own organizations and collective consciousness, a relation summed up by the impure dual formula, which is, that's telling language, segmental middling participation in organizations generated by the diffused circuits of capital and more independent varied participation in the authoritative nation state. Um, and then he goes on to talk about like all these various ways that, yeah, like the middle class comes to participate in organization, but then is that that is being partially structured, I guess, or determined by the very types of objective commonalities within their, within these individuals and families within the relations of production that man formally rejects. That's very interesting. And I think it's very interesting that the idea that the class is uh, impure uh, or that, or that there's these sorts of impure organizations where it's like, it's, he's, he's essentially doing an analysis. He's essentially doing an analysis of middle-class formation that his own framework would reject is what right is, is what right and mm-hmm. I, and I love when when I actually have to say like it's it's almost like his theory is less maybe is less interesting than is it. than I, I don't you really describe his analysis because how right lays out how the middle class come to form common connections or common understanding themselves as a class for instance uh, uniting members of the Parti Bourgeois the professionals and the careerists. I actually think is pretty on point, <laughs> like, and uh, very interesting, right? Like uh, the fact that they have enough excess income to invest in speculative investments. You know, like I've seen that. Like I've seen that's how, like that is how members of the petit bourgeois and the professionals come to become united with many members of the corporate class. Like I, I, I've seen that play out and and things like common family connections. And th- when he talks about uh, connections in this very similar types of family experiences, it sounds a lot like Borgia's habitus. Borgia hmm. being, I think, an interesting case of another uh, of a kind of anti-Marxist intellectual who actually produces a lot of interesting theoretical concepts that are valuable to Marxism, in, in my opinion. Um, almost like he's not capable of understanding the implications of his own arguments, uh, which is sort of what man is doing here. So I found that very interesting. What did what did what did you guys think about this section on the middle class, and what did you think about the about the description of the different ways the petit bourgeois, the careerists, these these waged or salaried employees moving up the, la- the corporate ladder, and these professionals come to understand themselves or come to form um, commonalities as as part of a of a class essentially for itself? Because I thought it was I thought it was interesting.
1: I think the interesting thing to me right now. From this framework, is that like the middle class in America is actually very splintered. The careerists and professionals are Democrats for the most part, and the petty bourgeois are Republicans for the That's most right. part. That's and exactly they right. Fucking hate each other. The sort of, yeah, the hybrid nature of the class, the instability of the class, I feel has been pushed to like the extreme in, in America because of uh partially because of geographical factors, but also partially because of accidental political factors. Like, couldn't uh, you argue that we're seeing something similar sort of play out?
2: Maybe I mean, I guess this is very contentious and we don't I don't think anyone really knows how to think about this at the moment, but like in Canada, like the Freedom Convoy protests, right? Oh, like yeah. like yeah. it's like like the, the the real driving force, from what I can tell, behind that, uh, it's it's like the petit bourgeois of the trucker industry, and they are just deci- and 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 they're allied. The, bourgeois, Canada right? And other like British you look, look at the, the, the biggest... restaurant owners, the shop owners. I mean, yeah, yeah,
1: like uh, like the biggest donors to the Freedom Convoy, where people like you know like. Like firing range owners and yeah, like too. RV sales owners and, and I mean, like you know, these like very yeah very small scale capitalists yeah. for the just, most part yeah.
2: just just like the strongest supporters of Trump people argue they were like they were like the they were like the guy with the boat siding business that had no education who lived yeah. who who tended to live in downwardly who were actually doing um, well in terms of uh, where they were in terms of income distribution. But we're living in rapidly downwardly mobile regions of the United States, and it's like those people are now like like fundamentally opposed politically to yeah the careerists and the professionals who have broken with the kind as as kind of like a sort of enlightened liberal uh, managerial like I not want to say a managerial class because I know that's a problematic framing, but like you know some their position
1: within well, um, yeah. Called? There's also a discussion we, we talked about when we read the 18th Brumaire, right, Tom, about in the 18th Brumaire, where, where Marx lays out like why these different fractions of the middle class tend to be at odds with each other. And, uh, yeah, we, we should maybe like revisit that at some point because it, it it is pretty interesting. And basically it has to do with the relationship to the state and capital. Where the careers and professionals tend to benefit from the state in ways that the, the PB do not. This, you know, really has a lot to do with why the Freedom Convoy or why the Republican Party is like middle class, but in a way that is very, very different from the middle class and the in the Democrats, who are allied with big capital and the state because all of these different groups. Benefit from state regulation in the ways that the PB do yeah. not,
2: as, as demonstrated every time a, a convoy protester decks a CBC journalist.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> that's that, that's that is when the uh, the latent objective factors become subjective and then subsequently <laughs> material.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, I, like I would go so far as to say that this is the tendency across capital. That like with kind of the defeat of like a, you know, both the communists and the social democrats and, you know, rate of profit coming in and reallocating, you know, production away, that all that capital ends up with is a fight between the petty bourgeois and the large corporations as our politics. That's, That's what we get. Until the workers rise, if they can rise again, like that is our politics, you know, between like a woke... World capitalism versus versus
1: basically the the, the Trump horde.
0: Right. And you see the same thing. Like, you know, I've been looking at a lot of different types of media over the last few months and you, you see it. It's the same thing in all of these different countries. They give out about like sexuality, transgender, all this stuff. Yeah. It's, 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 uh, it's our politics until something new comes. That's, that's the dynamic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think it, it, Like, there's a lot of different factors, but the degree to which there is a division between town and country is uh, strongly predictive of how severe the conflict would be, I think. The more you have the division between town and country, the more extreme this politics becomes. Just like it was
2: stated in the classic Marxist text, Country Mouse, City Mouse.
0: If you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about, Communist Economic Planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our Network Sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Gestures and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.